0: This is the Thursday Night Podcast, your source for news, analysis, and all things Georgia State sports. Because every day is Thursday. Hello and welcome to episode 198 of the Thursday Night Podcast. My name is Jordan and I'm joined today by Brady and David. We're still a week away from knowing where Georgia State will be playing their bowl game, but we'll keep plugging along in the aftermath of their 6-6 six and six campaign and look to the Sunbelt Bull slate as a whole and predict some all-conference awards. We'll also take a look at back at the basketball team's close loss at Charlotte and preview the Battle of I-85 as the Panthers head to Kennesaw State on Saturday. But first, it's a topic that is not going away. And boy, do we have some hashtag news uh, over the course of today. I'm going to throw to Brady because he's got the whole list. Uh, what What's up?
1: Yeah, so uh, anything catch everyone else's eye, just uh, general happenings around George State Athletics or anything last couple of days. No, I mean actually it's been really good. Uh yeah, f- day. Yeah, for sure. Um we'll just hit this off the top. Um I wasn't really sure what direction the podcast was gonna go. I just knew that the first thing we were gonna talk about was something about just the aftermath of football, lingering thoughts. Um, but the roster stuff has already started, and there was enough names that came up today that publicly announced their decisions um, that it felt like decision the time just peel a bandit off and start it now. Um, I don't anticipate these will be the last players to leave, though I would also say that there's a certain point where some of the players are going to be leaving the, the roster. Uh, might be coming more from the coach's side, just saying what's what and talking about whether there's opportunities to be there. Um, but certainly today i do not think that all of those qualify or any of those qualify let's start with the one that is its own category which is that inside linebacker john trey hunter who no longer has eligibility which is why it's different has declared for the 2024 nfl draft uh he ended up fifth in school history with 234 tackles he's got the school record with seven forced fumbles over his career obviously came in as a safety moved to outside linebacker and this year Inside linebacker, led the team in tackles. Uh, best of luck to John Trey as he pursues his pro interests. I would not at all be surprised to see him get drafted.
2: I wouldn't either, and he's definitely going to get drafted as a safety. It'll be interesting to see
1: what, what teams want to see when they have when they come for pro day or if he works out for teams. Definitely interested to see what's up, but I definitely think on balance, Moving into inside linebacker and showing off more skills this year was big, big for him um, in putting forward his pro profile. Beyond that, uh, here's, I guess, where the list gets more thorny. Um, Inside linebacker Evan Graham announced he's going to the transfer portal. More of a reserve. He'd played some on special teams, but uh, a three-star guy that just never clicked here in Atlanta. He's moving on to his next chance. Cornerback Tony McRae. Sort of the same thing. He was a sophomore this year. Played some due to injury, but hadn't really ever cracked it. He is going to pursue his options in the portal. Uh, he's from Mississippi, so I guess it probably wouldn't shock me if he ends up somewhere in the other part of the South over that away. way uh, I went all said and done. Running back, Casey Adams, uh, who was the backup this year to open the season, ended up bouncing in between second and third string. Obviously got a good bit of run against Old Dominion in the finale. Uh, only 62 yards rushing this year. Uh, He has announced his intention to move on to the portal. Uh, Starting players, uh, along with John Trey, who left for the draft, there's two so far. Right tackle Montavious Cunningham, uh, who has been the starting uh, right tackle this year, also played there last year. Um, And the big one, no way around it, running back Marcus Carroll has one one more year of eligibility, and he will use it somewhere else. Probably a la Jamari Thrash, Thomas Gore, Jameel Mohammed going to end up at a pretty big program because when you rush for 1350, 13 touchdowns, you catch a lot of eyeballs. <clears throat> you catch a lot of eyeballs. And uh that is definitely the biggest blow. Uh, I guess I'm not gonna try and like spin and say, you know, it's it's an opportunity, uh, because losing anyone that's been that productive, it sucks. And there's no way around it. But the thing is is when you have a guy rush for 1350 yards you can then turn around to someone else in the portal of which there are many players and say this guy ran for 1350 yards so it shouldn't be hard as a selling point for prospective running backs but obviously marcus was an atlanta guy um had waited his time here and it felt like he was gonna be kind of a lifer at this point but um the allure of what can come next for him and his thinking of his pro potential obviously played a factor here at the end and he has moved on. And now you are into the uh, situation where I don't think you're going to have any, uh, maybe one or two scholarship running backs. Uh, Cause I believe Freddie Brock from the main transfer will be done. So uh, running back was probably already going to be something you're going to look to add in the portal, but I, it probably is, number two on the list now and I say number two because quarterback is always going to be the most important thing and Darren Granger will not be back in 2024 and so uh welcome to the offseason you need to fill your
2: two most important skill positions I really wish that we could uh Go back in time and talk to ourselves from a year ago with coming off the four and eight season and then tell them, OK, here's how the, here's the record of the twenty twenty three Georgia State Panthers. Not tell them how they got to six and six. Um, and then here is all that you have to replace going into the next year. Um, obviously, wish, you know, everybody who left, well, um, you know, told no ill will and all that stuff. Um, the Carol loss is going to hurt, unfortunately, um, until we have any sort of clue as to, you know, who the replacement is going to be kind of what the team is going to do. That's just going to be a ton of the production, a ton of the production that Georgia state is going to have to find a way to replace next year. Um, if there's one thing I know about the staff though, it's, they are very good identify at identifying running backs. I think if you were worried about either of the two positions that you mentioned, it would be Georgia State getting a quarterback. And I don't think you should be worried necessarily. I just think, I mean, look at the history of backs since Coach Elliott has been here. I'm not saying the history of quarterbacks has been bad. That is just obviously a much harder position to replicate success with. Um, you really have to hit, you know, hit a home run with that one. So I think Georgia State is probably going to be fine. Um, and I wish Marcus well.
1: And uh, this is where I'll steer the conversation just to the general vibes and continuing on from the uh, post game pod. Um, clued in at the end of it that it's like, all right, maybe we'll be back for an emergency pod. There was a little bit of buzz. I think that the idea that they're going to move on from Coach Elliott this offseason is pretty much over at this point. I don't know that many people are holding out that much hope for it. I don't think it was a real uh, short odds for it to happen. But this point, Pretty much through all the head coaches, you know, Black Sunday is coming, gone. So with that in mind, and with the moves that have happened in mind, uh, I think that pretending that, you know, whether you want to point to an injury here or there is the reason things got a little bit fuzzy down the stretch, especially for the offense. If that is the choice that was made, I think it would be a big mistake because... I do not think one that is a viable option as far as you're trying to like build this thing up. Like you can't just always say, oh, injury here or there, because the thing is, is you're always gonna have an injury here or there, just the nature of the game. But but more to that. Um you know, the offense was less good this year, even after its great start. I don't really feel bad for giving Trent McKnight a lot of praise early on in the season because the offense looked very good early on in the season. But now that the dust is settled, they went from 30 points a game last year to 25.75 this year. And, you know, you gave a lot of credit for the team running the ball well under Sean Elliott. And I didn't want to push back at it at the time, but I would just note that this year was the worst rushing offense for this team since 2018, when it was actually about the same number. In 2018, it was 171.42 rushing yards a game, 4.44 yards per carry. 2023, it was 171.58 rushing yards per game, and that same 4.44 yards per carry. And I think that is maybe the biggest worry. Like, we've talked about the strides that Darren made, at least early in the year, in the passing game, and how there were more looks in the passing game. But they got away from it a good bit, and the rushing game just wasn't as good. You know, the offensive line cleaned up a lot in the past protection this year, like a lot, like massive, massive strides from where they were a year ago. But on the obvious running situations and like down by the goal line, the rushing attack just wasn't what it needed to be. And you saw that in the ODU game in those red zone, you know, short yard, um, short field trips, you know, when you're first in goal at the two and you have to settle for a field goal, when your part of your DNA is running the football, like that is a problem. And so I just think that you got to explore something there to change the mix. And the other part of it, and this is more about the news we got today with Carol, it's like, okay, you've got a real need for running back. You probably need to have a running backs coach as title. And part of it is they've made it work. You know, I will say that I think that a good deal of how the staff has been managed in the last couple of years has been about one, At a certain point, getting through all of the churn that they were dealing with, you know, losing back to back offensive coordinators and then losing your defensive coordinator this past spring. Like, I get it. Some of that is managing and making sure you're just able to keep your staff code cogent through the offseason and get set for the season. But like at this point, you're now through two seasons of all that change you should have a running backs coach because when these players are entering the portal and looking to Georgia state and they're going to the website or looking on Twitter, they're not going to find someone listed as running backs coach. And I don't have anything against Will Hunter. Who's been the grad assistant charged with helping that group. Um, Arkita banks has experience with running backs in his career before. And I don't know what he, if he is also if that's where he ends up hanging around at certain points just because he doesn't have a position when special teams isn't going, but I just think it's an issue when you don't have a dedicated full time assistant for that type of spot they've made it work, and i I can't look at what's gone on with the running back specifically and think it's been like some negligence with not having someone looking over it. It's just a different vibe as far as you're looking to recruit and you're looking to put that message out to other you know to recruits and to just the college football world. And the other part of that is like the reason you don't have a running backs coach is because you have a solely dedicated special teams coordinator. And that job has not been done excellently. There's real issues you can have with the special teams the last two years. And so it's like, if this is how you have it set up and the special teams aren't going gangbusters and you don't have this spot filled on the offensive staff, Maybe a guy that would have some insights that you could offer your offensive coordinator. Like, even if you want to stick with Trent McKnight, but you want to have another veteran offensive voice he can turn to. You don't really have that on the staff right now. And part of it's because you're one short on that side of the ball.
2: That's a good point. And I don't think that I myself thought of it that thought of it in those terms. Um, Because I I don't know, like. Something feels off with the way that Georgia. I don't want to say the coaches because I personally don't know many of them. You know, we see them on the sidelines, obviously. Um, it just it feels like something should be better about like the the talents. You know, and when we talk about the coaching hires, you know, obviously. There are a ton of players who are great players in all of sports who are terrible coaches. There are, you know, great coaches who were terrible players. So you never really know, you know, which way one is going to be until they're actually doing the coaching. Um, but, you know, with the, like the special teams coordinator, for example, we have talked about our banks for two years now. And you would think that, going from no special teams coordinator to a special teams coordinator would make special teams be something that's better, be something that is actually improving and p- giving positive value to the program as a whole. And I think I think special teams has gotten better in some ways, but down the stretch this year it was a real liability, you know. I I definitely Just, held on longer, the little
1: things not getting done. And that comes down to coaching because one you're picking the players who are out there and two you've got to you've got to be the one finding the edge and making sure that you know everyone's lining up where they're supposed to be you don't have an offside and an onside kick um it's less the stuff with the blocked you know kicking although i i didn't get a good vibe on whether that block kick was because of the protection or cuz rickman didn't kick it well but if it was on the protection again that's something that was a real issue last year for georgia state special teams more so on puns, but I guess they're spreading around,
2: right? And I, I guess you know, comparison is the thief of joy. You know, here I am about to make a comparison after saying that, of course. But when you when you look at some of the top tier programs in the Sun Belt, when they make mistakes, they don't make mistakes in the ways that it seems like Georgia State makes mistakes. And if the answer to that is the absence of a coach. As best as you can put a coach there. If the answer to that is a bad coach is there, then we've got to start having conversations about making changes at the coach. And I and I people are going to hear that and they're going to think that I'm saying, oh, fire Coach Elliott. No, we this isn't that that podcast already happened, you know, we where we talked about specifically. As Probably
1: far as that know, ship has sailed. Correct. It would surprise us if that is
2: going to happen at this point. When you say that it, surprise, like that would be an emergency podcast at a far greater emergency than what we were planning on earlier this week. For sure. Um, I just think and, you know, I think you alluded to it a few like in the, I can't remember if it was the post game or the actual podcast last week. Um, I'm not saying I'm not saying that Dan Ellington's job is in jeopardy. I'm not saying that at all. It. You wrote about it. OK, I
1: was on pantotalk.com column
2: i'm not saying dan ellington's job is in jeopardy i'm not saying john holt's job is in jeopardy i'm not saying brian landis's job is in jeopardy i'm just picking out coaches that i see on this list i think the problem that georgia state is having could truthfully be that some of those coaches that we have just don't have the experience that is necessary for what Both Panther fans, both Coach Elliott, you know, what people want to see and the specific instruction that is necessary to get Georgia State where they want to be maybe maybe it is a problem of those coaches not having the experience necessary to be able to rely on some of those stuff when they need to pull a new bag of tricks out you know I, I'm, and I, I juxtapose this to somebody like Shaq when I watch you know NBA on TNT like Shaq's answer to every big man over the last 30 years when he's been trying to give help is well I was big in athletics so I did this so you should do that and I'm, I'm not saying these coaches are doing that you know because I can't hear hear what they're doing in the spring. I can't hear what they're doing in the weight room. I can't hear what they're doing week to week during the season. But maybe it is a conversation of the instruction and the personnel that Georgia State has are not meshing with the players that they have and they can't get even more out of them, you know? Because I agree with you. I think at the end of the season the frustration that I had with how much I questioned McKnight by the end of the season wasn't because I spent the entire season thinking that he wasn't a good offensive coordinator. It's because for like the first six, seven games of the season, I was like, man, good call. Damn, I didn't think of that. Good call. Good call. Yeah, this was a really good decision. Look at what the defense is doing. You know, and it's, I'm not saying that it was perfect during those those games when the offense was humming, but it sure looked a hell of a lot better than it did by the end of the season. So I don't know. I, and I think the sexy answer is us having that emergency pod this past week on Monday or Tuesday. I think Georgia State is going to have hard conversations over this offseason. I mean, honestly, harder than they had coming into this year, if you can believe that. Um I don't know. I, I I just know that everybody wants change, but the, the players want change. The players that remain, the players that'll come in want change, you know, the coaches that are staying want change and, you know, hopefully they're able to deliver that.
1: Yeah. Uh, there's a part of this that maybe is going to make it happen anyway, especially on the defensive side where like Chad Stacks came in and inherited their whole defensive staff and had a whole different scheme. He was wanting to run and, my thing is, I do think there's a a chance that he is going to want a little bit more hiring power on the defensive staff. At least bring in a guy or two that are quote-unquote his. And so I'm interested to see if anything happens there, if they just kind of keep it as it is. That wouldn't even necessarily be performance-based so much as just kind of fit. Um, but, you know, the other part of it is this might change because Quinshot Davis, the receivers coach, Got some Power 5 pedigree, and I've already seen his name among a list of some of these jobs that are opening. Uh, Notre Dame's got a job open for receivers coach now. Kentucky does as well. And so what I'm about to say might be obsolete, but there's a a balancing act. Sometimes you want to get coaches hired away because it feels like you're getting getting the right guys. You don't want it to happen like happened with a couple off-seasons ago where you're losing two offensive coordinators in the spring. And certainly that threw a lot of things in flux, I think. But I think it is good affirmation of you having a good staff if you were getting those guys hired away to, quote-unquote, bigger, better jobs. And that hasn't happened for a minute. The last one was Nate Fuqua, the defensive coordinator, going to Cincinnati. But even that, that was a you know demotion just for a little bit more money at a better spot because um, he's now a co-DC. He's not calling the defense there. He just moved there. He's coaching the outside linebackers. But there's also some of that, that you don't want to have too much change, but some of it's just kind of natural, let you move into new guys and get a new voice in there. Because it is so easy, again, I think I said something like this on the last one, but it's so easy to get on here and just be like, fire this guy, fire that guy. These are their livelihoods, and they're working hard. And I have no doubt in my mind that if someone gets moved on from on the Georgia State staff, that they were doing their best to succeed. And this is not the conversation where you're just picking on people and you're calling names. And like, that's not what this pod is. Pretty sure that's obvious at this point, nearly 200 episodes in. But sometimes it is about just the mesh and it's about getting some new ideas in there. And especially with how the season ended for the offense, I think new ideas is just kind of the biggest. Now you need new players as well, but. I think a big part of it might just be that. And so, kind of be a tough conversation or two, because if that happens, people on the offensive staff are people that have either been with Coach Elliott since he has been in as the head coach in, in Georgia State in Atlanta. Trent McKnight has been here the entire time, or it's guys like Dan Ellington and John Holt who he coached as players, both at App State and Georgia State. And so, like, I'm not pretending any of this is easy, but. It would be disappointing and it would be a a signal that a lot of people would take as, oh, everything is fine after the six and six uh oh and five end of the year if just nothing changed. And so I think that there's gonna have to be some inward looking at the staff. It's tough because at the same time as all of this is going on, and I'm sure they've been having meetings all week after the season ended, there's a bowl game to prep for and They've got to recruit a new class and you can't go in with like four less assistants as you're trying to do all of that work. And so college football needs kind of a stop button on some of this stuff because all of this happening in November and December is bad for these coaches sleep schedules and just for everyone involved. It's not very good, but it is the reality. So there's there's a lot of that, a lot that's up in the air. But like at the end of the day, I think it is okay to expect something to be different when the team is heading out there, getting ready for the Georgia Tech game next August. Because if it is just, OK, a couple of things didn't break our way, but we're running back the exact same thing to the thing with Einstein.
0: Definition of insanity. All right. So uh, let's talk bowls. Speaking of Sunbelt will be in 12 of them, or at least 12 Sunbelt teams will be bowling. We'll see who plays who. Uh, the entire East division is going bowling, plus Arkansas State, Louisiana, South Alabama, Texas State, and Troy from the West all got to six plus wins, including James Madison at 11 and 1, who will go bowling with there not being enough six win teams across the FBS. James Madison and Jacksonville State uh, joining one five and seven team ranked by APR going bowling. Gentlemen, thoughts on this absolute deluge of Sun belt Bowl eligible teams?
1: That was a very good note from you, Jordan, because it is possible and it has been leaked that it is possible that there will be a Sun Belt Sun Belt matchup in a bowl game. Just by the sheer numbers of it all kind of hope georgia state doesn't fall on that boat just because it'd be kind of like oh them but i imagine it'll be an east west thing and so it'll likely not be a team that played in the regular season so people will get over it um it'll be in a new city it'll be a team they will not have been familiar with this year so you know whatever and it does speak to just generally like the sunbelt crushed it and Georgia State was a part of it by completely letting up that game against Old Dominion to let them get to 12. But like if you remove that part of it, which is very hard, I recognize. Insane spin zone right there. Insane. (laughs) It is kind of cool that the entire
2: division is going to a bowl game. Uh, Yeah, it absolutely is cool. Um, I wish it happened in any other way than the way that it did happen. But it is cool that the entire division is going to a bowl game. Uh yeah, don't don't do a sun. I I don't do a rematch of a Sunbelt game that happened this year for the Sunbelt Sunbelt game. That they would not usually be
1: don't want to do rematches in general, so I imagine they will try to avoid that. I mean, they probably are going to try and avoid the Sunbelt Sunbelt thing, but it might be one of those deals where this bowl works out with deals with two teams and by the time you get to the final few it's like, well, there are two Sunbelt teams left and there's one bowl left. And so I guess we'll see how that shakes out. Um, it does flip though. Like the thing is, is it, well, you've seen this a few times through bowl season where a, a conference does well and gets a lot of teams there. Like if half the teams lose, you got six teams with bowl losses, it looks a little bit uglier. Like there is more chances for the somehow to lose on a national stage because you have more teams there. But, you know, having played through this conference and watched the other teams, I feel pretty good about a lot of matchup independent teams' ability to go out there and put on a good product. I mean, Georgia State and um, ODU, I mean, you put on a similar, like, middle of the pack, lower middle of the pack for these Sun Belt Bowl teams standing. Georgia State's always played well in bowl games. And ODU, I mean, I assume they're just going to be in a one score game in the fourth quarter, whoever they play. Like, they get matched up with. You know, UTSA, Tulane, SMU, they could play a power conference team. Like, they could match up with Clemson, and I'd be like, all right, it's going to be a 17-14 game in the fourth quarter. Like, I believe all that now, having seen it
2: up close and personal in that final game. Totally aside, and we didn't say this – I didn't say this in the post-game show. I love how that ODU game went exactly – both against how you said it like you said specifically if georgia state has a good lead i don't see how odu could come back and then the second half turned into exactly how odu like likes to play football games it's just so funny
1: i will point i will say to the jury uh you saw that game that was a one in a million just the way it lined up my take stands is acceptable
2: no, for sure. Like I, I agree with like, if you are saying that the full game would have been either, uh, you can't come back from a, a blowout or they're just going to yeah. be crazy physical. No, I was and wrong, but no it.
1: one would have predicted how I would have been wrong. And so I can, exactly,
2: that. exactly. That is my only point here.
1: And so I miss my overriding thing is I'm just interested to see how these matchups line up. I'm a sucker for bowl season. Uh, I don't always get to anymore, but I try to catch like a piece of at least every game because I'm just a sicko. So um, I wear that badge proudly. Interested also to see how App State Troy goes this weekend in the Sundell Championship. Um, I think for all parties involved, and even JMU fans would begrudgingly probably admit this, with them not being allowed to be in, them having it be a team that they lost to is at least like something you can say, okay, whatever. Like, they beat us on the football field. They represent the East. It is what it is. It seems like a lot better than... Like, they hammered Coastal. They absolutely just stomped them in the regular season finale. They won 56-14. If Coastal had managed to go at that point because Georgia Southern beat App State, I think they would be like, look, we just beat this team by 42, and they're going to the East title game. They're, They're going to the title game representing the East. So there is a part of it that it's like... This almost feels like perfect and symmetrical and everyone can move on. I kind of think it's Troy's game, but. I mean, we're at the point where like on all of these games, it's like, I don't know about App State and that's where they love to be like this App State team loves to be doubted. I'm sure they have no problem being the underdog in this game. And Joey Aguilar has looked really, really good down the stretch. And so. If there is a team in the East other than James Madison that you feel like could go in there and score 30 on this Troy defense and give themselves a shot, it probably would be this App State team right now. Um, And maybe next year is the year they're back to looking like downfall app. Uh, Obviously, it did not happen this year.
2: I certainly agree with you. Um, I feel very confident that Troy is going to get this one done, though. Um, I love where the line is um i know this is not like a betting podcast but like i like to use spreads as just like a yeah no, know you know just you a, talk about uh, it without just just don't talk about your sick parlay three team <laughs> right 25 team parlay gonna make me a billionaire um uh, no 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 i don't bet truthfully um but i i, I think troy is just too good um I think Aguilar is going to move the ball really well, though. Um, and I said this offline, but now that I'm specifically looking at his numbers, Watson did have a better season than I initially had thought. He was much better, um, I suppose, down the stretch, um, which is good. Like that, that was honestly the thing that I thought would hold them back this year. I, I mean, the defense was always going to be good, um, but he certainly figured it out. A um, couple really big games down the end of the year. Now that I look at this. Um but yeah, I, I mean, I think the defense that for Troy is, is too good. And I think that they can just get uh, has been able to be moved on a bit this year. Um, and I think Gunner is going to find a way to do it, especially with Vidal behind him, who also was, I think he ended up being second in the Sunbelt in rushing. So one yard, one yard. Dang. <laughs> dang! all right, Marcus, Marcus would have made that not as close if he wasn't hurt, but <laughs> that's, that's funny. Um so, yeah, I I think Troy's going to get this one done. It'll be a good game though. Like it, honestly, off the top of my head from a sheer game perspective, I feel like you got to give Georgia Alabama, then Washington Oregon, and then this one as like the interesting watches this weekend. There's there's other good games, mind you, but in terms there's of There's also like, Michigan Iowa. Exactly. There is also Michigan Iowa and I, I as much as like the texas thing is a bit in a meme i think texas is too good even for oklahoma state so sorry cowboys and cowgirls
1: well we almost were going to lead right into the next thing perfectly and then you kept talking so pretend this is a couple minutes ago you're talking about these players their good performances down the stretch um probably by the time you're listening to this podcast the sunbelt will be putting out their all conference teams and awards so we are doing this ahead of time. You might have the answers. So we'll pressure this on for us to answer smartly because you might be able to immediately be like, Oh yeah, they got these all wrong. Um, but we're going to try our hand at just kind of the, the major awards. Then also where we figure the Georgia state football players are going to land. And so starting with the award side of things, I don't know that either of us would have a different answer than Jordan McLeod for player of the year. Um, would be the second straight year James Madison quarterback was winning that award. And early on, it wasn't about him. Like they were winning some tight games and he was still kind of finding it, but like he earned the player of the year down the stretch. He was playing incredible, absolutely torched Georgia state, but then he also did that to coastal in the regular season finale. And so it wasn't just the Panthers wearing that one. And uh, I think it's Jordan McLeod's well-earned award offensive player of the year is going to probably be the first part where we might have different answers. And this is probably also the part that gets a little bit sad for Georgia State fans. But you can still celebrate the season that has just gone on, even if uh, events have transpired.
2: Uh, Yes, I did have McLeod um, to speak on that. I had Joey Aguilar as the Offensive Player of the Year. Um, I'm not sure your take on it, but I mean... That for, As far as quarterback seasons go, really good. Threw for a lot of yards, threw for a lot of touchdowns. Did a good job of minimizing the interceptions. It was a little bit of a problem at some point. Um, but it was kind of spread out is how I would say it. So definitely think that he had the best offensive year um, out of any of the quarterbacks.
1: I'm kind of glad neither of us did the homer thing because I didn't pick Marcus. Um I think that the numbers are close and that Troy is a 10-win team. So I went with Kamani Vidal, Sunbelt Offensive Player of the Year, because it's an absurd amount of rushing yards that both of them put up. Um, he did it, obviously, in a, a in a, a way that it will catch more eyeballs for how Troy did. And it's also worth saying, you know, Marcus had 1350. Kamani Vidal had 1349 Only had nine touchdowns. Marcus's 13, but he had a 5.31 yards per carry average was better than Marcus's 4.93. Obviously, I think if Marcus gets it, it'll be well earned. And I honestly always like when non-quarterbacks win some of these awards because whether it's the Heisman, whether it's the player of the year stuff in the conferences, quarterbacks get a ton of love. And so it's always nice to see someone else get the love. And so I kind of had it between Marcus and Kamani Vidal, and I land with Vidal for all the reasons I just laid out.
2: Don't hate that. Don't hate that at all.
1: And then because we talked about this one pre-show, I know that there's a little bit of dissension on Defensive Player of the Year, where I have gone and just said tackles are fun. It's great when you have a lot of them. Jason Henderson has 29 more tackles than anyone else in FBS, not just the Sun Belt. And is kind of the guy that everyone who's had to play ODU this year had this circle on defense on the tape, get ready for when he was out there. Like, I think it is not just the sheer numbers with the tackles, but like when you're talking about guys do the MVP thing as far as like valuable, like he is a guy that you always had to account for when you were prepping for that team. And it's because he's everywhere. He's making every tackle. So I just think... That would be a spot to give a guy who probably going to end up on an NFL roster soon his his fair dues for the job he has done the last couple of years for the Monarchs.
2: Totally understand. I I get it. I do. Um, Trey Moore is a outside linebacker for UTSA. There's a there's a point to this. Don't worry. Trey Moore is an outside line, linebacker. David, the conferences. Yeah. <laughs> trust me. Trust me. We'll land this plane. He's an outside linebacker for UTSA. He, in 12 games this year, had 14 sacks. That's over a sack a game. That's really good. Like, Trey Moore, very good player. Um, Jalen Green is a defensive player for a Sun Belt school, James Madison, and in nine games had 15 and a half sacks. Um, that led the country. I should have said that Trey Moore was second in the country. That context would have been important. Uh, Jalen Green had a ridiculous season. Um, and I'm, I'm sad that he ended up getting hurt when he did, didn't play in the last three games. Um, I think he got hurt in the Georgia state game, like early, no late, Um, they were already a 42, 14 point. Um, funny enough, that was one of two games that he actually played this year that he didn't get a in. Um, but I mean, he was a monster in every other game, um, super hard to block. Even the games where he only had one sack, it was still like, okay, this guy is a, bleeping wrecking ball um so yeah he is my defensive player of the year easily
1: if i'm honest i feel silly for not doing it my other logic was that i just feel like coaches are gonna want to spread it around a little bit and give some other teams because if you did it that way you could legitimately have james madison just about sweeping the awards and i know they like to spread this out a little bit and that's a spot to give it to a guy like henderson who's not on the James Madison Dukes. However, and again, I'm, we didn't talk about this one, so I might be wrong here. I do think that you're going to have a James Madison representative for coach of the year. Cause Kurt Signetti 11 and one the year after they went, what? Eight and three. Can't really argue with the job that he's done in this transition.
2: I actually don't. Oh, okay, cool.
1: I'm glad. Yeah. we got, Again, dissension is good for content and also so people can hear different answers
2: my bar for coach of the year in every sport is I, I greatly weigh expectations versus final results. Um, and I, I think Signetti is good coach. You know, I truthfully think the world of his coaching chops. going to love Bloomington. Uh, Seriously. Going to love it. Um, any other answer besides Bush Jones feels wrong to me? Like, I did I I, truthfully before the season started and like we can find it in our like our team chat about this. I had Arkansas State and Old Dominion, the two teams that won two games this year. all. like, that's it. I truthfully had Arkansas State beating Stony Brook and Southern Miss. And that was it. They were going to lose every other game and it was going to be ugly. And especially after those first two weeks where they got outscored, what, like 110 to three? I felt very vindicated. This Arkansas State team ended up being bowl eligible. They ended up dropping 77 on somebody by the end of the season, completely erasing the huge hole that they put in their point differential. That, to me, easily coach of the year.
1: That's fair. I think the other nominee you'd do is G.J. Kinney, Texas State, kind of the same category. He would have been my second choice, actually, just because, you know, seven wins. And I don't think that we talked about just how much of a job that was of bringing in a whole new roster and immediately flipping it. Because uh, Bobcats had not been to a bowl game and they are doing that this year. And so if he wins for that reason, it wouldn't shock me. Uh, newcomer of the year last year was also Senteo. So it's possible that they're just going to give that to McLeod. I put down Ismail Mahdi of Texas State, the running back all-purpose guy because i think he also had a hell of a season but i put that knowing that it could just
2: also be mcleod i went like anti homer and i put brin i thought he had a good season with georgia southern georgia southern fans would not agree with you there that's fair too many interceptions of course but you know i think when he was actually throwing it to people in blue and white um that are not georgia state he had a good season so you know that that's where that was my thinking with that one and jalen rayner arkansas state quarterback for freshman of the year yeah there was no way that that was going to be different for both of us
1: (laughs) the sunbelt west just got some real real it would have been tougher if zeon chris had stayed healthy all 12 games and that is a real bummer sunbelt west is in good hands from the
2: quarterback position for a few years here now Yeah, I mean, I hope that none of them transfer because, I mean, we talk about the conference elevating. That's what you want. Let's set the bar differently. I hope not all of them transfer. (laughs) That's fair. That's fair. You you want to beat the good competition is what I'm saying.
1: And on the Georgia State side, while I did not pick Marcus for Offensive Player of the Year, I think he's in there, and as a result, I have him on the first team. It's a good group of running backs in the Sun Belt. Mahdi's another guy I named who could certainly usurp him. Rasheen Ali, Frank Gore Jr., LaDamian Webb at South Alabama. But I think leading the conference in rushing yards is going to get Marcus to that first team, which, again, might feel a little bit different for fans celebrating it at this moment. But he had a great year for Georgia State.
2: He really did. Um I think, I don't know how we're specifically breaking this down. I guess we're just talking about players. Um, I don't think Robert Lewis is going to make first team. I think he's going to be on second or third team though, despite how it ended just because of the way the offense was, he had a really good year. And I, I know that it seems like, okay, the leader in the conference had like 500 more yards than him. Yes, that is true. But 70 receptions and almost 900 yards, that's not something to sneeze at. Like, that is a really good and productive season.
1: He's seventh in the conference in receiving yards. I had him on the third team. I guess I'll just bang through mine here. Um, Gavin Pringle, I put a second team cornerback. John Trey Hunter, I have a second team and linebacker. Either of those I could see sliding into the third team, but I think they might land there because Gavin had four picks. And kind of the same with... Thing with Henderson, other coaches know how good Hunter is because they had to prep for him, and so they'd put him second team. Third team, I think they're going to put an offensive line guy there just because, so I put Travis Glover. I have Lewis on the third team. And then because every team gets four honorable mentions, I got the safety duo, Ty G. Leach and Jeremiah Johnson. I landed on Justin Abraham, the other inside linebacker starter for Georgia State, and Darren. I think that the way that the year ended moved him away from the player of the year conversation that was going on very early in the year. And I think that it there are also some good quarterbacks. You mentioned Aguilar. We talked about McLeod. We talked about Rainer. Um, you mentioned Bryn. It's been a good league for quarterbacks, and so it's not really a diss. But he fell off a little bit. The, the team-specific spot is probably where a couple of quarterbacks are going to land because it's competitive market, and uh, you definitely can't ignore all that Darren did Ended up being, like, far and away the best running quarterback in the Sun Belt. Like, he is number 12 with 625 rushing yards. Sorry, I had that sorted by a different guy. He is 11th in yards. He's got eight touchdowns. Can't forget that part of the game when talking about Darren
2: certainly can't. And I I pretty much have the same list as you. I just think Leach is going to actually make a list. I don't think he's going to be honorable mention. I think he's going to be on the second or third team. He had a really good season. Um, And while you you don't necessarily game plan for safeties in the same way you do like cornerbacks or defensive linemen, I think he still made his presence felt on the football field a lot.
1: That's fair. And I might have honestly underdone it Maybe it was a little bit of the moment of just losing five straight. It's like, i hey, are not going to have that many teams. But now that I look at only having five on the actual teams, I kind of regret not doing it, but I'm not doing the list over again. So I'll let you take that win if that ends up bearing fruit and being true.
0: Now let's move on to talk about basketball. Uh, men's basketball traveled up to Charlotte and defeated by the 49ers by a score of 65 to 57 on Saturday night. Panthers held a 37-26 lead at the break, though, thanks largely to a 51% shooting percentage, led by Tonari Lane and his four three-pointers. But Charlotte, who had entered the game giving up just 58 points per game, put the clamps on in the second half and embarked on a 12-0 run out of the locker room to take the lead and ultimately ground out a win, holding Georgia State to 6-27 of 27 shooting in the final 20 minutes. Panthers are now 3-3 three and three on the season. Gentlemen, thoughts on this
2: Charlotte game? Okay, so a lot of people, myself included, <laughs> either jokingly or seriously wanted to juxtapose the basketball game uh that Georgia State played with the football game that Georgia State played that ended a few hours before. And I'm here to tell you with a level head days later, don't do that. Charlotte's defense is actually good. They're semi-levels of legit.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, I watched their post-game press conference, the Charlotte coach and player, and like they were pissed about giving up 37 in the first half. And like he basically said without saying that he kind of lit into his guys at halftime of like, this isn't how we play defense. And so I think you can take away the bright spot of like offense looks good against a good defensive unit for 20 minutes, and then they Adjusted and they clamp down, and like when you drop thirty seven on a team, especially one that has suited to defense like Charlotte is, they're gonna respond um definitely a lot to like though, as far as you know, after a slow, slow shooting start, Tenari Lane looks like the guy just as a three point shooter uh, he had four in this game, it was four of seven, and I think hit all four of them from like the exact same spot at the right wing. Uh, He was absolutely feeling it. And look, the Corey Allen thing isn't going away. He wears number 11. He is absolutely one of those guys that when he sees one go in from three, another three or four are going to be coming or more. You know, I welcome him to go back and equal some of the numbers Corey put up. And I think after the Belmont game, the shooting maybe got a little bit lower, and it's like, all right, this hasn't really marginally, maybe only marginally improved from last year's team. I think you hope to see some of that continue to step up as the season goes on. But Lane is the guy who's definitely found water, is the, just the dynamite shooter. And even having him at nearly 40%, just a hair under 40%, on last year's team, having one guy doing that, maybe would have won George State a couple more games. Didn't happen in this one, but... That is like the first day, like the last couple of games. I mean, Little Rock games and then this one, like Lane is finding it for sure.
2: And, you know, with those Corey Allen comps, um, that's going to be important. I think we've gotten a little bit more data to suggest um, some things about Georgia State as far as shooting the ball. They're still finding it. And I think it's better than last year. Um, I just think this is going to be a team that is a little inconsistent with how they shoot the three, and that's fine. I think if it's better in terms of percentage and if it's better in terms of the total number and the shots look good, because they looked good for most of this game. Um, And I guess that's more what I want to see than anything else. If you're a good shooter and you're taking good looks, the shots will fall. You know, it might not always be the best and the most perfect, but that's, I mean, that's how basketball works. That's how sports works. You want to mathematically put yourself in the position to be able to score and to find the high percentage looks for you. And, you know, I i like what I saw on a lot of the looks, even in the second half where they didn't hit any. Um, and I think it's just going to be a team that has to find it some nights and, you know, some nights you'll have it and some nights you won't, yeah, but that's fine. And some of this
1: was they missed the shots in the second half when they were there. But if, story of the game for me, 11 assists in the first half, a single assist in the second half among those six made shots. Real correlation there, I think. And especially when you know, any team just gets stagnant and not able to share the ball and get makes off of those passes. Uh, the offense usually does not go in a great direction. The thing that immediately after the game I had singled out as a negative was 15 turnovers. I was like, that's a big number, and they have not been doing a, a bad job of turnovers, so that's worrisome when they face a good defense. But then I peeked further under the hood. So 15 turnovers as a team. Leslie and Kerouham had four. Jaden Turner had two. Jermaine Mann had two. Edward Namoco had two. All of DeWan Odom, Lucas Taylor, Brendan Tucker, Ricky Bradley Jr., the ball handlers, the primary people running the offense, had one apiece. And so I took a pause. It was like, all right, watch some of these if you're not the primary guy and just giving away the ball. There were a few of them were some moving screens that got called and those count as turnovers. Clean that good. stuff
2: up. As, yeah. They weren't good calls
1: either. Even as that may be, work on that stuff. Don't get it called. I think one of them, Leslie, like tripped. It was a weird, weird moment in the game. It,
2: it, that is the one that I'm specifically thinking of.
1: But I was less worried after watching the game back and looking again at the numbers in more detail that like the turnovers thing still not really a problem. They're in the top 30 in turnover percentage. And in this game, you had 15, but it wasn't your guards doing it, getting you into trouble. And that is still, I think, the thing you can lean on with this offense is they'll take care of the basketball. And it's, I just feel a different energy from Dewan this year. I don't know about you, but like it isn't even like he is doing more like just on the stat sheet level, but like there's moments where he is absolutely making plays that I don't know that he was making last year, whether it's from a confidence of the the guys around him, but they were up 21-13 in the first half. And there was a certain sequence where DeWan did not get the rebound, but he got to the ball first and tipped it to Jaden Turner and then quickly asked for it back. And everyone else ran down the court, and he threw a like inch perfect pass all the way down to the other paint to Leslie, who got a layup out of it. And it's like you forget how good of a passer he is, just like a textbook basketball passer that Dewan is. And it leads me on to a thing where we've talked about a little bit just the starting and who's starting, and it's all the new guys this year. You've got Brendan and Jermaine and Dewan in bench rolls. And I think it's working fine. I think Brendan and Jermaine look really, really good in the roles that they're playing. My only little tweak that I would do, I kind of think you need to start DeWan in the second half. Like, I think that he gets going and you saw it with the way the offense was operating by the time got to the end of the first half and they'd scored 37. And it's not a thing about Ricky Bradley. I think he's also capable of running the offense, but I think DeWan brings a certain energy and... I think that you want to get that out of the locker room. And I'm not saying that's why they gave up a 12-0 run and lost the lead. But I do think that if he's out there and if they keep what had been working at the end of the first half going there to start the final 20 minutes, maybe it goes differently. And it's just something about tweaking as you're going on. I don't know the exact reason for the choice for you know who's starting, who's not. But I do know at a certain point it's about having the five guys out there that you want to have out there. And I think to, at least to start the second half, basically independent of what the game situation is, you're probably going to want number one out
0: there.
2: I agree. And I, I don't want to make the DeWan thing a weird thing because I feel like um, I feel correct in saying you have the same level of just... This is something that is curious to me than, like, this is something that Coach Hayes is doing wrong. He's still playing starter minutes, so it doesn't
1: really matter. It's just exactly. about his name getting called at the beginning of the game or not. Exactly. But game situationally, I think it has factored it in the second half.
2: And I think I think the DeWan thing is... I, th- I think I finally understand it. Because at first, I was like... That's, unless there's somebody who was a transfer and we haven't seen that is truthfully just that much better as a ball handler that we didn't know. This seems kind of odd to put your best facilitator and have them come off the bench. But I think the thing with him is one coach wants to save him because he played so much last year, which totally fair. Um, but also I think he's just staggering the facilitation and he's allowing the facilitation to be, okay, when I have my starters out there, I'm going to pull Bradley or I'll pull Lucas Taylor and I'm going to put in Duan and still have that same level of high facilitation. And I think that you haven't really seen a Georgia State do that in the past couple of years. They've always had like a guy come off the bench and either whether it be a guard or whether it be a big man who was first – Go ahead. Say the, his name. Jeff Thomas. Let's get let's get a Jeff Thomas mention okay. on the pod for the first time yes. in years. Yes. When when Jeff Thomas was the person who was doing this, I think Coach Hunter wanted to use him specifically as a scorer or a shooter, change the looks defensively that you would have to throw at Georgia State, just because they already had a bunch of guys who could dribble the basketball. Um I'm not saying that Georgia State wouldn't benefit from something like that if they were to put Dwan in the starting lineup, but it really does make sense to kind of stagger him and have him play with both guys who are a little bit down on, in the rotation and with the guys who are the main guys that are in the rotation. You know, like he is definitely that bridge and can facilitate when Jermaine Mann is on the floor, when Brennan Tucker is getting hot, you know, but he can also run with Jaden Turner. He can also run with Leslie Nkerium and and Tanari Lane. So I don't. Know, I think it's, it finally is starting to click with me, but in that same vein, I do agree with you. You know, you probably prevent sort of those 12-0 runs that Charlotte can go on if you put him on the court at the beginning of the second half and then treat him as a, you know, with your, when you're staggering the minutes, treat him as like a starting second half and ending game type player.
1: Still early season certainly could still be tweaks had from Jonas figuring it out. And I think he's probably just happy having the the options and you know, I, I don't, he's not going to do the moral victory thing. I'm not doing the moral victory thing, but I think even in a game, you were up at 11 at half losing to the Charlotte team still by single digits. I mean, they're going to play good freaking defense. A lot of the year, they're going to be tough in the American, um, I don't really have any qualms with the way the loss went. Obviously, losses are not as good as wins, but you move on and you learn stuff about yourself. And I think it was another game where they learned something about themselves and it's about what they can do moving forward.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, shoot better, makes make some threes and, you know, it's probably fine.
0: All right, let's go ahead and move on to this weekend's opponent, which is right up I-85 in Kennesaw. Saturday, 1 p.m., Kennesaw State, for the first time since 1989. That's right, the last time this game was played, nobody on this podcast was born. Uh, These Metro Atlanta basketball programs will face off with Georgia State holding a 3-0 all-time record against the Owls. It's the first part of a home-and-home that will be completed with a game at the GSU Convocation Center next fall. Kennesaw is led by first-year head coach Antoine Petway, formerly a longtime assistant coach and a player at the University of Alabama. They're 4-3 so far on the year with wins over a pair of non-D1 schools as well as Georgia Southern and Northeastern and their losses coming in against Florida State, East Carolina, and Florida International. Gentlemen, thoughts on Kennesaw?
1: I think collectively, everyone listening to this on this pod is happy this game happened. I think a lot of people are more collectively happy that this game is not last year. <laughs> Given the way that Kennesaw made the NCAA tournament and Georgia State, did not, uh, to put it very charitably. I think it's going to be a fun game. I think it's going to be, you know, I was on a Kennesaw State pod that probably is also going to be out by the time you're listening to this, the Chat podcast. They were talking about how everyone they know with Kennesaw affiliation is finding a way to get to this game. Probably going to be a pretty good environment. Independent of the in-state Georgia stuff, playing in that type of environment on a road in non-conference is always good to get you ready for conference play and just getting tested in road situations. Um, But I'm looking forward to it. I'm glad this got scheduled, especially a a home and home like this was so doable. And it's also interesting. I kind of want to ask Jonas about this probably after the game is when it's going to have to happen. Pretty sure him and Jarvis would have played Petway as players when they were in Georgia and he was at Alabama in the early aughts. So another dimension to this game as if it needed any more.
2: That stands to reason. Um, I really, really like this game. And like you said, I'm glad it's not last year. They were 15-1 at home, those pesky owls. Um, I mean, it's a good team. It's not the same team as it was last year, but I think it's still going to be A solid team, and it's going to be an important test for Georgia State. You know, it's it's always fun playing non-conference in-state teams. I don't want to say rivals. I don't think Georgia State and Kennesaw have a rivalry officially, but
1: the thing is, is it could be one basketball. They're both, you know, Kennesaw's on the ascendancy. Georgia State's been that program in the state the last decade, and Kennesaw is making the move to FBS football, and so it could be on the schedule a lot more on the football side of things too.
2: Oh God. Is is the way that the Sunbelt scheduling going to work that Georgia state is going to have to play Kennesaw state at the very end of their season on rivalry week. Gross.
1: I don't know if it's going to be like that, but Georgia state's got a lot of openings on the football schedule at the end of this decade. And Kennesaw is going to need to fill out basically an entire out of conference schedule for the entire decade. And so It would surprise me if they are not on the schedule before 2030 for a couple of like maybe even like a four times, you know, home and home and home and home. And so I think that plus the football or the basketball stuff is going to make it more of a rivalry than it's been. And I think both schools kind of need that. I think both schools need another team. Like obviously, Georgia State is Georgia Southern, but they've got their thing with App State. And I just think having multiple teams where there is some kind of a feeling of rivalry makes you feel more like a legit college program. And I feel like now that they're the FBS and now that they're putting it together basketball, the opportunity is there and Saturday is going to be first time in our lifetimes going to be in the building for some history now. Yeah, it'll be fun. I mean, I'm excited to watch the thing with this matchup. um, Interested to see clash of styles thing. Mentioned the turnovers thing with Georgia State. They don't really do it all that much. Kennesaw's 49th as the recording of this podcast in the country in defensive turnover percentage. Only I mean, like 24% or 21% possessions end in a turnover for them defensively. And so the, the first and the biggest test for the Panthers will be if they keep up taking care of the basketball against a lot of pressure in a team that's trying to force turnovers. Kennesaw has given up some shots. Their field goal percentage they've given up is not great. Uh, They give up just a hair under 34% on threes. So maybe an opportunity if you're withstanding this pressure, withstanding this road environment, for that shooting day you've been looking for since the Belmont game, that it's like, all right, the shooting is really and fully back. Down on the other side of things, uh, and this was a point that I would have made about the Charlotte game, but I just saved it for this because it's still relevant. Uh, Just stop fouling so much uh, is the thing. Because teams have attempted more foul shots than f- shots from the floor against Georgia State this year. They're in the bottom five in the ratio of free throw attempts to field goal attempts. 52.7% or 527 is the ratio, I guess you'd say, to what, 48.3% of att- I, I I'm figuring out this number on the fly. Um, it is not good. Georgia State is fouling too much. I had made a point, I think, a pot or two ago about how it was. You could tell Jonas was okay with it because of the number of fouls he has to play with, the rotation he has, but just on a game-to-game situation, too many foul shots for the other team. They got to do a better job of defending without fouling. Kennesaw's got some good guards and shoot from free throws, so this would be another game where that would hurt you, like it did against Charlotte. Just, just foul less. Just a good bit less.
2: Yeah, that'll help Georgia State play better defense if they're focused on not making contact as much. I mean, sometimes you foul when you get out of position, which, yeah, that's fair. But at the same time, though, it's probably a good idea to minimize that because teams teams have been taking advantage of Georgia State at the line a little bit.
1: And kind of putting a bow on just like the, the stakes of it all. I think Georgia State fans have taken a lot of pride in how they've been the class of Georgia hoops the last decade. Last year, they won 10 games. Kennesaw kind of took that mantle for a year. It would be a pretty big moment for the program to be able to get a win here on the road at Kennesaw the year after that to kind of be like, we're back. Because I don't know if this is the year where Georgia State's going to rattle off 20 wins and head back to the tournament. It feels like an improved team. We don't know if it is that improved of a team. But if the dust settles on the season and they've got a winning record and they've got this win over Kennesaw, and it feels like things have gotten back to at least the level, like the baseline expectation for Georgia State basketball, I think that would go a long way. And so this does present that opportunity for the Panthers there on Saturday.
0: All right, and that is all the time we have for you this week on the Thursday night podcast. But of course, we'll run through everything happening on the composite calendar for Georgia State sports this week. And it's starting to get a little bit lighter now that football regular season is over. And a lot of other sports have been included as well. But women's track and field is going to be back in action Friday morning, 10 a.m. in Birmingham, Alabama at the BSC Icebreaker. And then, of course, Saturday, aforementioned men's basketball game at Kennesaw State. That one's at 1 p.m. You can watch on ESPN Plus or listen live to Dave Cohen on the call on WGTJFM 97.5. Brady will be in attendance with your live tweeting and reporting from that game as well. Moving on to Monday, men's basketball back at home, hosting Middle Georgia State in the Convocation Center at 7 p.m., that game on ESPN+. And you can also listen to Dave Cohen on the call on WRSFM 88.5. But that's everything for this upcoming week in Georgia State sports. Uh, Take care. Until next time, we'll see you later, and go Panthers!